Welcome back, OnScript listeners. This is Matt Lynch. We appreciate you listening to OnScript, where the men are introverted, the women read Akkadian, and the children are above reproach. Uh, one quick note before we get into the episode, and please stay on, this will only be 20 seconds. Matt and I are doing an episode together, but it's been slightly delayed. It's just the difficulties of Matt and I coordinating our schedules, uh, which means that you have more time to send questions for us to onscriptpodcasts at gmail.com. They can be about anything biblically connected or related, or you can tweet them to onscriptpodcast. Okay, now to the episode, Matt Bates with Kevin J. Van Hooser. This is On Script, where you are invited to enter into the best conversations about scripture and theology happening in the world today. I'm your host, Matt Bates. I'm continuing a mini-series where I, where I engage systematic theology more directly. Toward that end, joining me today will be Professor Kevin J. Van Hooser. In the preface to C.S. Lewis's justly famous Mere Christianity, Lewis explains what you won't find in his book. The reader should be warned that I offer no help to anyone who is hesitating between two Christian denominations. You will not learn from me whether you ought to become an Anglican, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, or a Roman Catholic. This omission is intentional. Then Lewis continues, Ever since I became a Christian, I have thought that the best, perhaps the only service I could do for my unbelieving neighbors, was to explain and defend the belief that has become common to nearly all Christians at all times. Lewis is gesturing toward the need to articulate and defend a mere Christianity. Kevin Van Hooser's new book, Biblical Authority After Babel, is trying to accomplish something similar, but with a twist. He wants to recover a mere Catholic with a lowercase c, Christianity, but he is going to argue that the only way this can be achieved, ironically, is by embracing what he terms a mere Protestantism. Welcome to OnScript, Kevin. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, Kevin, isn't Protestantism guilty of causing never-ending fracture in the church? How are you going to begin to persuade us that Protestantism isn't itself to blame for this fracture? Yes, I like a challenge, and you've stated it well. What prompted my book in the first place was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and if you can know a tree by its fruit, it it's certainly time to assess what fruit the Reformation has borne. And lots of books that are coming out now uh, point to spoiled fruit. The spoiled fruit being this plethora of denominations, this thousands of disagreements that the Protestant ship has launched. And so, yes, my, my argument is counterintuitive, but I'm taking it up because I heard too many people say that the Reformation is something we should lament rather than celebrate. And I think Protestantism has become a a kind of whipping boy in the public forum, and there's lots of empirical evidence to support it, but that was the challenge I set myself to try to explain that if we look hard at the intention of the Reformers themselves and at what they were able to accomplish, at least partially, we will recover Uh, an interest and the possibility of a new kind of Catholicity, not centered on Rome, but centered on the reform. Well, Kevin, I think you do strike a nerve there, as I think that there, even for many who are part of the the Protestant orb, there is perhaps a a Rome sweet Rome sort of lament, uh-huh. you know, that yes. uh, that wouldn't it be great if we could all be in one one large camp? Uh, and I think that we're, we're all sympathetic to that uh, that concern, uh, who are part of you know uh, ecumenical interests, uh, you know, and uh, and I think we'd all you know in theory love to be one. Uh, but uh, what that oneness consists of, of course, is uh, is negotiable, and how it might be best expressed as negotiable. Now, uh, what exactly do you mean by a mere Protestant Christianity, then? Uh, so, when people think of Protestantism, they think of division. There's an adjective that I only see used in connection to Protestantism, 
and that's uh, fissiparous, which means highly fragmented. So when people think of Protestantism, they think of something that's highly fragmented, divided, and that's the first thing that comes to mind. So my title, uh, yes, it's, it's meant to be an incitement. It's meant to be almost a paradox. What could mere Protestant Christianity be? But when I looked into, as I say, the original intention of the Reformers, uh, none of them wanted to start a new church. They, they're called Reformers because their main intention was to reform the one holy Catholic apostolic church. So I think this is important. The events have, un, have unrolled as we now know them from church history, but Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon, Thomas Cranmer, they were all interested in reforming the one church. And I came across a book in my research that was quite helpful and to answer your question. I think this is what I mean by mere Protestant Christianity. The book was by John McNeil, and it was about the Reformation, but it was entitled uh, Unitive Protestantism. So he was more concerned with what the Reformers had in common and again with their intention to reform the one holy Catholic apostolic church, not to start a new church. Uh, if Protestantism has resulted in divisions, I think that's in part because the reform didn't take. That is, the Roman Catholic Church did not accept the reform. But as I mentioned, the reformers themselves did not want the division. Uh, even in Luther's famous 95 Theses, he still, you can tell he's still optimistic that the Pope will listen to reason and scripture and agree with him. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's that's certainly true. When we look back at the Reformation, there wasn't an intention to to launch away, uh, but but uh, indeed to reform from within originally. Now, let me introduce our guest properly. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser is currently a research professor of systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He was formerly Blanchard Professor of Theology at Wheaton College and a senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh. He's written numerous books, several award winners included. Uh, is There Meaning in This Text, which won a Christianity Today Book Award in 1999, and The Drama of Doctrine, one of my personal favorites, uh, which won a Christianity Today Best Theology Book of the Year in 2006. Our conversation today will center around Kevin's exciting new offering, Biblical Authority After Babel, uh, published by Brazos in 2016. Uh, the subtitle gives a hint at the argument. Now let me read the subtitle for you then, Retrieving the Solas in the spirit of mere Christianity. Now, Kevin, I'm not going to call out any specific names, but some systematicians fly over the biblical text at some, you know, 30,000 feet, uh, if they deal with it at all. Uh, you're not one of them. And uh, speaking on behalf of the entire Biblical Studies Guild, then, I want to say thank you. Uh, well, you're welcome. And uh, I should probably tell you that my first love was indeed New Testament studies. I was a Biblical Studies philosophy major at college. I did New Testament Greek with, I think, two excellent New Testament scholars, Robert Gundry, Moses Silva. I wanted to grow up and be like them. And it was largely the advice of my mentor, Robert Gundry, that uh, pointed me towards systematic theology. His argument at the time was, you know, we have lots of good up-and-coming New Testament scholars on the horizon, but what we don't have are systematic theologians, particularly those who love scripture. And I took that as my marching orders, and in my doctoral work in systematic theology, one of my main questions was, what, what does it mean to be biblical in systematic theology? And that, that question propelled me for uh, several years. Yeah, I think it, you might have actually mentioned this. I don't have a page number in the book itself, but I think you might have even said this was your life, your life quest, your your life question, or something along those lines. It was it to, has to, it, yeah for years. It was my life question. I think now I want to expand it because I don't you know I don't want to be biblical just for the sake of being biblical. I want to be biblical for the sake of being a faithful disciple. But I felt that that question, what does it mean to be biblical, was uh, preliminary, primary, something I had to work through in order to get to this bigger question, which is how to live to the glory of God. 
Um, that's that's interesting. As um, as I what, part, one of the questions I was going to ask is, you know, uh, you know, why is this still important to you to kind of um, to be ferreting out the relationship between Bible and theology? And you've sort of answered it in terms of being a faithful disciple. Is this also a, a hint at you know any a, a future research trajectory for you? Then are you beginning to um, uh, to want to do more in that arena? Uh, well, yes. Uh, let me back up and add something else that's important, though. My, my interest in the Bible has to do with its subject matter, of course, and this is the gospel, the good news that focuses on Jesus Christ and what God is doing in Christ through the Spirit to renew creation. That's a pretty important theme to focus on, but I want to know Christ and scripture, I believe, is the commission testimony authorized to tell me about him, to help me learn his way. So, yes, I did begin with this question, what does it mean to be biblical? But I just don't want to lose sight of the larger question, which is, what does it mean to follow Christ today? And that's the question that I think systematic theology is supposed to be answering. The understanding that faith seeks is not simply theoretical. The understanding is... Uh, that we get if we're doing systematic theology well is we help people understand what it means in practice to live the life of a disciple in the 21st century. So, but uh, with regard to biblical studies, yes, for years and years I've had an active dialogue with exegetes. I'm trying to get over the dividing wall of hostility that has separated our disciplines for too long. And, yeah, so for a number of years, I have been involved in this movement called Theological Interpretation of the Bible. I even edited a dictionary with that name that was an attempt to break down this wall of not hostility, but maybe incomprehension and different disciplinary methods and so on. I think I would like to see biblical studies become more theological, and I'd like to see theology become more biblical. Well, you're preaching to the choir over here for sure, as uh, as because of the work of people like you, Joel Green, and others. You know, I've 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 become very interested in the theological interpretation of Scripture too, uh, as uh, I think it's a it's a growth area in our field. But but not just because it's there's um, um, not just because there's new work to be done there, and so that there's academic excitement, but also because I think so many people recognize that we're in an unhealthy state without having a deeper conversation between Bible and systematics. So Right. And also, if I could just add, uh, what that generates is a, another wall, and that is a, a wall of incomprehension between the academy and the church, to some extent. So I've been concerned to chip away at that wall as well and done some work on the idea of the pastor as a theologian. Now, Kevin, one of the very first things I learned as I opened your book uh, was the shocking and appalling revelation that you are considered an anarchist. Now, (laughs) are you, Kevin, renowned theologian that you are, uh, are you in fact an anarchist? Right. That um, That term was indeed predicated of me by a French person when I was doing mission work in France uh, after my college years. And it simply comes from him being a Roman Catholic, pointing out to me, and I didn't know this at the time, that the etymology of anarchy has to do with being without a head, anarchos. And he was referring to Protestantism. In other words, Roman Catholics, when they have interpretive disagreements about Scripture, there's a procedure that they can follow. There's an institutional... Uh, process for resolving interpretive disagreements. It's called the magisterium, the teaching authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Protestants don't have anything like that. So when he heard me talk about the Bible as God's word, he quickly wanted to point out that all my claims about biblical authority come to naught when Protestants, who all affirm biblical authority, end up disagreeing as to what it actually says. Well, that's a great story. It, it, it very much amused me when I read it. And it, it, uh, as we were corresponding, you mentioned you're actually heading back into that area, into the cradle of the Reformation again to do some lecturing soon to, to Freiburg and Basel, I think you mentioned. So uh, that'll be a, maybe an opportunity to be accused again. Uh, who knows? <laughs> yes, uh, here's hoping. <laughs> well, back, circling back to some of your leading themes here then, if, if, if theodicy, when we talk about theodicy, is an attempt to get God off the hook, so to speak, 
you know, in the face of accusations that God has been behaving badly, uh, then what you're attempting in this book might be fairly called a Protestant odyssey or something like that, you know, attempt to get the Protestant Reformation off the hook uh, in the face of the accusation that it's been behaving badly. Um, now, I wanted to, to, to then walk through a couple of these charges uh, and, uh, and, uh, and to talk to you about your responses to them. Uh, the charge, uh, charges of bad behavior are legion, um, and uh, one charge of bad behavior is obviously uh, the charge of, 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 the, uh, of the fracturing nature of Protestantism. But some others are maybe a little bit more surprising, uh, including the charge of secularization, uh, leveled by Bradley Gregory, uh, and skepticism of Richard Popkin, and schism, Hans Borsma and Peter Lighthart. Well, that's the more obvious one. Uh, but how about uh, those first two, secularization and skepticism? Uh, how do these charges flow from the Reformation for some people? Yeah, Brad Gregory has written an important book called The Unintended Reformation, and it's about the consequences that flowed from the Reformation that the Reformers couldn't have seen and certainly didn't intend. And one of the, the charges that he makes is that when Luther uh, suggested that people can read the Bible for themselves. Uh, he, t he took it, according to Gregory, out of, the, out of the sphere of the church, out of this, as I've mentioned, this teaching authority, and to some extent naturalized it, suggested that, you know, any reasonable person could make sense of the Bible, uh, perhaps without the discipline and the instruction of the church. And I, this is a, a long book, but to cut to the chase, I think his point is that Luther demystified the Bible, took it out of the sacred realm, out of the realm of grace, and naturalized it. Or at least he didn't do that, but, but uh, effectively down the road, that's ended up what happened. Scholars, you know, listening to Luther saying every person can read the Bible for him or herself, uh, approach the Bible as an academic book, not as a holy scripture. And I think Gregory is suggesting that uh, that was to degrace the Bible to some extent, to take it out of the orbit of the church as, a, as the means of getting grace, suggesting that somehow we could get the meaning of the scripture without the grace that the Roman Catholic Church mediates. It's a, it's a part of a, a complicated argument about the Reformation, but it has to do with the relationship of grace and nature. And without grace, of course, if we're simply left with nature, well, that's, that's secularism, this worldly reality only. And uh, we're going to have a question that deals with that uh, relationship between nature and grace in a bit, as you, as you touch on that more in your, in your first chapter. Um, now, how about the charge then of—that uh, was then to address the charge of secularization. How about skepticism? Uh, right. So, again, this is not something that the Reformers wanted to set out, but uh, the idea is that when you read the Bible for yourself, and that Luther had talked about the priesthood of all believers, and I don't think he meant that every individual on his or her own can make sense of the Bible in isolation from the church. I don't think he meant that. I think he simply wanted to say that all members of the church— are, as it were, to be priests to one another, ministering the word of God. They, they have the right and the responsibility to do that. But uh, he's been heard as suggesting that we can all make sense of the Bible for ourselves as individuals, and that leads to this modern idea of individual autonomy, mm -hmm. almost as if you know each individual could let his or her conscience be their guide. And so this, to Richard Popkin, uh, again, provokes a crisis of authority. Whose say-so over what Scripture means counts and why? If every individual has the same say-so as every other individual, then there's no authority mechanism, and nobody's view is considered more trustworthy than anybody else's, and so that leads to a kind of skepticism in modernity that's also blossomed into modernity uh, when people suggest that every knowledge claim, every claim to have authority and so on, is really a person or a party's uh, attempt to gain power for themselves. So it's a very deep skepticism. Uh, 
that uh, some think follow from this claim by Luther that each person can read the Bible for him or herself. And your book then is uh, designed partly to refute those sorts of charges, um, and uh, you do so partly by showing these five solas that are part of the Reformation then are are not just some sort of arbitrary, um, you know, convenient uh, placeholders that we have to sort of explain and summarize Protestant theology, but they're they're really um, the only principles uh, by which the church can stand. Uh, and so you're wanting to defend them. And and uh, but to go beyond that, I think that one of the things that that you did that was very helpful for me personally uh, was to show that they're knit together. Uh, and this really touches at the core of your thesis then. Uh, can you give a preliminary statement at least about how it is that they, they interlock these five solas? Right. Uh, well, let me say first of all that we do talk about the five solas, but uh, originally that is at the time of the Reformation. I've only been able to track down three that were explicitly referred to. Uh, I think it was in the 19th century that people began to talk about the five as a handy way of summarizing Protestant insights. Uh, but I don't think they're simply disconnected ideas. I, I was uh, influenced by Graham Goldsworthy and his uh, insight that the five solas all get at aspects of the gospel. And that's what concerned the reformers in the first place. Everything they're trying to do, I think, is they're trying to preserve the integrity of the gospel that they felt was somehow imperiled by various distortions in late medieval Roman uh, Catholic Church. So the five solas, I'm arguing, are ways of appreciating different aspects of, of the gospel, this news that the triune God is, is at work in our world, uh, centered in Christ through the Spirit to uh, renew all things. So each chapter then, as the book emerges, focuses on one of those solas. So we have the first chapter on sola gratia, the second on sola fide, and then sola scriptura, solus Christus, and then the soli deo gloria. Um, and uh, and so then in the in the first chapter, as you begin to to um, to try to retrieve uh, sola gratia, then uh, by grace alone, uh, then. Uh, what you're trying to do is not just look at what did the reformers believe about grace, which was primarily positioned around uh, conversations about soteriology, but to kind of move it back to a larger plane, at least that's my impression of what you're doing, and, and to say that uh, that it's not just about soteriology, that soteriology proposes, uh, uh, presupposes a larger economy of grace. Um, is that a fair summation, and could you could you flesh that out a little bit further for me, if it is? Yeah, no, thank you, Matthew, because this has been, um, I think, uh, maybe a misperception about my book. When I say retrieving the solas, I, I might suggest to some that I'm a historian that simply wants to go back and get it right and correct misapprehensions. And indeed, that's part of my motivation, but on the other hand, I'm not a historian, and I'm not simply about replicating exactly what the reformers thought. That's their, what they thought I take as my starting point. When I speak of retrieval, I actually have in mind what uh, Roman Catholics were doing in the 20th century when they uh, went back to patristic theologians for inspiration, as it were, and for renewal of the way they were reading Scripture. Uh, so it's a recovery of something past for the sake of the present. And I think this is crucial because, again, I'm not a historian. My argument doesn't depend, I don't think it depends, on my getting all the details right. Uh, the historical situation of the Reformers is my starting point, but there's some creativity that's implied in retrieval as well. I'm going back in order to get inspiration to move forward in the present. So, all that, and again, that was my intent. I don't think that I'm trying to cheat. Uh, I, I mean, I want my historical account to be correct, but my book isn't limited to describing what the Reformers thought. That's my starting point, and I'm really trying to work in the spirit of the Reformers to address contemporary problems. 
Yes. Yeah. Does that I think, help? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you do. That's that's a great articulation. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that this may even be your language, if I'm remembering right, but you're not trying to repristinate. You know, you're not trying to go back and say that, well, the reformers got it all right. And so that, you know, we need to recover their exact um, uh, soteriology yeah. or whatever it might be, but, but rather that they had captured underlying principles that we need to retrieve uh, and, to, uh, and to contextualize into our modern world today. Exactly. Um, and, and I also admit that some might take issue with the way I formulate those underlying principles, but that, that indeed is the spirit of a retrieval. Good. Well, as we, as we think about how this might apply then to uh, the category of, of by grace alone, um, one of the things that I, I felt was a helpful discussion as I was working through it, as some of us was, was not entirely new to me, but maybe your presentation of it was fresh to me and, and, and cast new light on some things that I, that I, that I have pondered in the past, was uh, uh, your discussion about the connection between grace and nature, and especially uh, how that was understood in medieval theology, uh, how uh, that has gotten mobilized in more contemporary Roman Catholic appropriations, uh, how that connects to the, uh, uh, the analogy of being, and so on and so forth. Um, and so uh, maybe, maybe we could start there. Uh, with what what were what was the scholastic understanding then of the relationship between nature and grace, and then how did the reformers question that? And then maybe we can we can move from there into more contemporary appropriations. Right. Well, the the textbook uh, approach to this would be to say that there was a, a kind of two level understanding of reality, nature and supernature, and so. What happened, according to the Roman Catholic view, at the fall, Adam's nature was not corrupted. What happens at the fall is that he lost uh, the grace that had been given to him in that original context. But the implication is his nature itself is not thoroughly corrupt. He can still do things. He can still respond as a human being. He can still reason. He can will. And so grace... Uh, in the Roman Catholic scheme, this is, the, again, late medieval, grace is thought to be something that is a boost to nature, that it somehow perfects nature, that it enables nature to come into its own. It's a, boot, a, a boost, an aid, a perfection of nature. And we need it because without this grace, we're very frail and we're weak and we're prone to sin and uh, salvation then on this scheme is getting the grace that Adam had back, getting our nature renewed by participating in the sacramental system. As this was the, uh, the, the picture of the church, you see, is that because of Christ's work, the church was a storehouse of grace, and the, the various sacraments were the means by which everyday people could get the grace they needed to... Uh, repair their nature, uh, have their nature assisted, and then uh, realize their true nature, which is, a, which is not a natural end, but a supernatural end, the contemplation of God. So that was the, the system that the Reformers inherited, as it were. And the system, we have to say, it sometimes got corrupted. Uh, this whole practice of indulgences that uh, made Luther upset was, I think, a way of getting a shortcut to grace. The idea was that if a sinner paid a certain sum rather than undergoing a certain penance, they might have their sins commuted, they could have this indulgence, they could have this dose of grace, as it were, to, to help them. And Luther just felt that that was, uh, you know, it was as if grace was on sale, and that cuts against the very nature of what grace is, he thought. So that, that's part of the background that the Reformers uh, were working with. And then the other thing that the nature-grace distinction does is that it does uh, suggest that there is such a thing as, as pure nature, that somehow the world is able to operate on its own apart from God's grace. And this, uh, arguably, could set up the idea that somehow we are autonomous, that we can somehow do without God, and historians debate whether the nature-grace dichotomy 
is itself not the reason or one of the factors that we now have secularism in modernity. Now, what's a better way forward for us then if, um, if, if there was somebody who was a fan of what we might call the sacramental ontology then or this idea that, um, uh, that somehow or another grace is, uh, is, uh, is inherent in nature and participating in nature in such a way that it can be accessible and helpful to us. Um, what's, the, what's, what's a better way forward today as we, as we respond to that? Well, uh, again, I'm a Protestant, so, uh, you know, I think grace is God's goodness poured out to us out of his mercy, and it's, it's apprehended through faith uh, in the preaching of the word. The Protestants then don't believe that grace is something you, you get or ingest or have infused. Uh, it's, it's rather uh, the good news that in Christ... Uh, we don't have to worry about repairing our nature. If we can be united to Christ through faith, uh, all the grace that is in him is ours. And so I, I suppose the answer to your question would be uh, faith in the gospel, uh, accepting, accepting the lordship of Christ. This is the way to, to uh, receive God's favor. God's favor has been poured out to us in Christ. Oh, thank you. That's helpful. And um, this this analogy of being business, you know, the analogia entis is a, a sort of very famous line in the sand in theology. And I personally have sort of wrestled with this and, and mm-hmm. uh, not really known what to make of it as a biblical scholar. Um, there's some things that I find appealing about it. But then, you know, I read some Bard and I'm, I'm concerned uh, that maybe it's not the right way to go. Uh, personally, uh, do you affirm it? Uh, so I wouldn't want to do theology on the basis of the analogy of being. Uh, the, our, the idea is we look at something in nature, we look at something in creation, and then we reason up to what we think God uh, should be like. It's the way of eminence, as Aquinas called it. Um, let's put it this way. I wouldn't want to make that my main method of theology. Yeah, I think Not it your could starting be, point then? Yeah, but... not, not my starting point. Yeah. Maybe not even the main motor. I might use it as a as a test, as a criterion, you know, of what I think I've found in Scripture. How does that measure up to mm-hmm. this analogy of being? But the problem with it that I see yeah, is that it eventually leads to, or at least makes one susceptible to Ludwig Feuerbach's critique, where he, this is in his famous book, The Essence of Christianity, he argues that all talk about God is really talk about human being. In other words, we take something we see that's good in us, and then we magnify it, maybe stretch it to infinity, and then postulate it of God. But the, his, his point was, the secret of theology is anthropology, on his view. And my concern is that if we, do, if we follow this method, this analogy of being, we're starting from ourselves or something in creation, and then we're simply trying to stretch a created quality. And my concern is we're projecting our idea of perfection onto God. Whereas when I read the New Testament, time and time again, the wisdom of God seems to make foolish the wisdom of men. There's something, you know, we would never project the cross <laughs> upward. That, that doesn't seem to be a perfection of being. And yet, Somehow, the cross is one of the most definitive revelations of of God's nature. And I think that overturns the kind of bottom-up thinking that's uh, very common with the analogy of being. That's helpful. I mean, it sounds like you're you're echoing kind of precisely Luther's theology of the cross over against a theology of glory. There, saying we're not going to, fi- we would never find uh, God in the manger, right? Uh, or we wouldn't expect to find him there. Or exactly. You know, uh, and uh, and uh, and I think that Luther seems to have a similar sensibility, though he does seem to want to say, on the other hand, that we can know something about God from nature, just nothing saving, uh, or it doesn't get us to any uh, any saving place. In fact, it can lead us to a dangerous place. Uh, he right. wants to argue, and it sounds like you want to follow follow well, his lead. Then, and he's following, you know, biblical passages like Romans one that speak of what can be known of God from the things that have been made. So I don't want to deny any means of knowing God, and yet I think you're right. We, my concern would be again that we might end up 
with Feuerbach if that were our main methodology? Well, I, I could talk about this with you forever, but we better press on or we're not going to cover uh, some other interesting things in the book. So let's jump to your second chapter, um, which is on faith alone. Uh, and uh, again, as you're, you're trying to retrieve faith alone, um, you're wanting to do something, I think, larger than what the Protestant reformers were doing, but maybe is implicit in what they were doing. Uh, and uh, to, to read a quote from your page 72, uh, you frame the issue this way. You say, uh, as salvation is by grace alone, so too is knowledge of God through faith. So you're focusing on knowledge of God here. The burden of the present chapter is to argue that the reformers anticipated, even if they did not fully develop, what we may call a modest testimonial foundationalism, a modest testimonial foundationalism of a kind that has come to fruition only recently in, for example, the work of the mere Protestant Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga. So you want to expand sola fide then into the arena of epistemology. Uh, that is, you know, the, the study of how we know what is true and what is not true. What are you driving at here? Again, yeah, good, great question. Um, the reformers uh, are often accused of fostering modern individual autonomy because Luther said, you know, individuals can read the Bible for themselves. So what I'm getting at is how from modern individual autonomy we have the problem of skepticism. And uh, there are some connections that it's not just me making a leap from faith, which has to do with actually discussions of soteriology and justification. You know, why am I moving from soteriology to epistemology? It's not just me making that jump. There have been some other people who've seen parallels between justification by faith in soteriology and what we might call justification by faith in epistemology. Uh, it's, it's the term justification, which, you know, obviously it has a theological meaning, uh, how we become right before God, but it also has this epistemological sense of how you support what you're claiming, what is your justification for that claim. So there is a, some terminological connection, and as I say, some, there are some theologians before me that have made this connection, but my emphasis is wanting to say that there is a place for trust in epistemology. And I think Alvin Plantinga is one of the philosophers I can think of who gives a theological account of knowing where trust becomes very important. But I also, in the book, cite a Roman Catholic thinker who makes a very similar point about the centrality of trust. And I also know of some secular philosophers who have recently talked about the importance of testimony as a means of knowing. And uh, that that was what I wanted to uh, kind of pick up on on this section on sola fide. Uh, the way we become right with God, according to the reformers, is through faith in God's word. And I, I my my P.S. to that is, oh yes, and faith in God's word is also a means of knowing. Trust in testimony is epistemologically respectable in the 21st century. Yeah, I think that's a, a a really profound connection as we have these ideas of warrant that Plantinga talks about and justified true belief and all of that. And uh, certainly it does connect to um, to salvation uh, in ways that are intriguing. Now, of course, the the question that emerges, though, is uh, as we, we begin to talk about issues of trust and knowing, uh, who are we going to trust and uh, on the basis of what testimony and how do we adjudicate whose testimony is reliable? And the charge might be, of course, that uh, that we have Luther with his very famous "Here I stand," and that this is a self-reliance uh, sort of mode of operation. Uh, but right. you don't you don't think so? Well, yeah, a great question again, um, and this is what leads to skepticism: the idea that you know we trust ourselves. Well, if everybody trusted himself or her, him, herself you know, we end up with anarchy. Uh, there's no way of, of discerning who is trustworthy or not. So in the, in the book, I, I talk about this, and I distinguish uh, epistemic self-trust, which is one's trust in oneself as the ultimate authority, and trust in others. And what I wanted to argue here, and I think this is going a little bit beyond Plantinga, but the idea is that if we're if we're being reasonable people, uh, we have to extend the courtesy 
of trusting ourselves to others. Because if we're conscientious, if we're really being uh, honest about ourselves and others, we have to admit that many other people are trying just as hard as we are to read the Bible correctly. And so I don't think that Luther's call for every person to read the Bible for him or herself is simply a call for them to be egocentric in their biblical interpretation. Um, and so the idea that we're to trust others who are also trying to get knowledge, uh, that is a step at least, I think an important step, towards Catholicity, that is an appreciation for the whole church, and not just for one's own uh, reading, which would be egocentricity. Yeah, I liked that. I like that delightful phrase you used: extreme epistemic egoism, uh, to de <laughs> to, de to describe this uh, the sense that it should all be about our own private judgments, you know, or well, the individual's all, private judgment. We all know people like that, right? Yes, we do. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, well, an, another another strand, I think, that uh, of. of um, uh, as as you were as you were seeking to kind of bolster this framework was to speak about how it connects to apostolic authority uh, could you um could you remark on that a little bit right so the other thing about faith and trust is that we're admitting some kind of authority back into the picture and i think this is inevitable it's very difficult to know anything without trusting some authority. You know, how far is the sun from the earth? I have to trust the authorities on this one. I don't have a ruler long enough. I don't have the time to go out and measure that myself. And there are lots of things uh, like that. But uh, similarly, we have to trust those who knew Jesus best, the eyewitnesses, and these are the apostles. Uh, the apostles don't claim authority for themselves. They claim that they've been delegated uh, authority from Jesus. That is, Jesus commissioned certain witnesses. And uh, this was not easy. Uh, they, many of the apostles suffered for their witness, but they took their commission seriously. Woe is me if I don't proclaim the gospel. And so they, we have the Gospels, we have testimony from the Apostles about the life and work and significance of Jesus. And so the Apostles are very much part of what I call the pattern of authority. The, the principle of authority, of course, is God. God is the author of all things. He's the only one, really, who's able to say what everything means, uh, you know, what truth is. He is the author but he's delegated his authority to Christ, the incarnate Christ, and then the incarnate Christ delegates his authority to his chosen uh, witnesses, the apostles, one sent by Christ on a particular mission, which the mission is largely that of bearing testimony in their words and lives uh, to the truth of Jesus. Well, Kevin, that's a, a really nice segue, actually, to our to your third chapter, which is on Scripture alone, um, because you open that chapter by claiming that the Reformation retrieved this authority principle, and I think by that you mean um, that the triune God has some say-so in what counts as authority, um, and that in retrieving this authority principle, then, um, that the Reformation was insisting that only in Scripture does the Church have God's say-so in written and thus permanent form. But of course, many of our uh, Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters are going to disagree with us Protestants about that, uh, right? And this is the rub, right? Uh, how can we say, or on what grounds can we say, that tradition is excluded from equal authority, especially as Catholics are going to make the appeal to say that uh, there was an independent, uh, perhaps, uh, authority, uh, you know, that was an oral tradition that the apostles, it is apostolic, they might claim, right? Uh, and that it was passed along, um, you know, from uh, the apostles to the bishops and so on and so forth. Um, how do we then um, how do we then come back to um, uh, scripture alone as 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 the only authority? Yeah, well, you're right. This is where the rub is. I think this is in the this is the central chapter, both you know in the book and in a sense the um, of the argument scripture alone. Uh, and you said it right. I, I, the claim is that scripture alone is where we have the definitive verbal say-so of God on matters concerning Christ, creation, 
consummation, the church, and so on. Uh, it's important to say that in the book, I don't deny that tradition is important. I think it is. Uh, but with the other Protestant reformers, all I'm denying is that it is a supreme authority or even an equal authority. So it's, it's very important for your listeners to, to hear that Scripture alone means that Scripture alone is the supreme authority, but Scripture is not alone as an authority. It's part of a pattern of authority. I think that's very important. But I think, I don't know, the burden of proof to me is on those who want to argue that there's a second source. Um, you know, the early church had to deal with this, uh, you know, in the Gnostics. The Gnostics claimed to have oral sayings as well about salvation. And so th this is one of the first problems the early church had to face. Irenaeus had to face this. And he, it, the apostolic tradition was extremely important. I believe that it came to be expressed in its definitive form by the writings of the apostles. Um, and to say that there's an oral supplement, that, that seems, to, it seems to me the burden of proof would have to be on those who, who say that there is this second discernible source that the Catholic Church agrees on. You see, we do agree on the Protestant canon in the sense that Orthodox and Roman Catholic theologians agree that what's in the Protestant canon is also in their canon. <laughs> but but once we get beyond that, there's disagreement, and that means there isn't Catholicity. So I guess I guess I'm saying that if the if something other than the scriptures are to be considered apostolic, I want to see the the Catholic agreement about what uh -huh. is apostolic. <laughs> sure, sure, um, yeah, and I, and I think it's interesting when you read through you know Dei Verbum, which is uh, you know a foundational um, document uh, that Catholics appeal to with regard to revelation and scriptural authority and so on and so forth. Um, uh, whenever they whenever they comes to the part where they define what tradition is, it's very very vague. I'm just speaking off the cuff, so I don't know if I remember it exactly, but it says something along the lines of, "Well, it's everything that was handed on that is useful for the 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 growth and the faith." life of the people of God. It's something very, very general, as uh, they don't want to press down and define what tradition is. Uh, as uh, as uh, they want to, it seems in the document, in a lawyer sort of way, want to keep that very nebulous. Um, anyway, uh, one of the things I thought was really helpful that you did uh, along these lines in thinking about how scripture and tradition might relate to one another is you sort of mapped out uh, three different ways that this has been carried out in the history of the church. You had what you called tradition uh, zero, tradition one, tradition two, and tradition three. Uh, and this circles back to what you were just saying about Irenaeus, I think, and if I've, I followed your argument correctly, um, I think that uh, you would say that it, the earliest church, uh, that tradition one, uh, then is that the rule of faith uh, is the apostolic deposit and was not a separate tradition uh, that was in addition to the apostolic deposit, and that it's only subsequently in church history uh, that we end up with a sort of claim for parallel tracks where we have a separate um, uh, 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 scripture on the one hand and tradition on the other understood as, as separate and separable uh, sources right. of authority. Right. So, uh, yes, Heiko Obermann, the historian of the Reformation, made a famous distinction in his work uh, between Tradition one and Tradition two, And the numbers, the Roman numerals, uh, indicate how many sources of tradition they're supposed to be. And so I think the Reformers were affirmers of Tradition one. There's a single apostolic tradition that, as Irenaeus says, uh, gets summarized in the rule of faith. But what the rule of faith summarizes is, in fact, what is in Scripture. And I've come across a couple of works uh, recently that have argued that uh, Irenaeus himself <laughs> held to a version of Sola Scriptura. It wasn't called that, of course, but it's actually John Baer, uh -huh. the Orthodox theologian, who has argued that... Uh, Irenaeus had something that was functionally equivalent to Sola Scriptura. And so I'm, I'm going back to Irenaeus. I want to retrieve his understanding of tradition. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think it's what the Reformers themselves retrieved. Well, it would be impossible to find a more authoritative source on Irenaeus than John Baer. So if, if, uh, if he says that's what Irenaeus believed, uh, then uh, uh, that's some weighty authority if we're going to invest our trust in the community of interpreters.
yeah, very impressive. And I, yeah. I was encouraged to find that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, let, let's see. I, I'm, I'm going to jump to uh, an entirely different uh, question, uh, just okay. to shake things up a little bit. Uh, okay. As I, I am excited to talk about chapters four and five too, but I want to make sure I get to this question because we ask it of all of our all of our guests. Uh, and so, uh, are you ready for our big question then? I guess I am. Yes. All right. So, Kevin, what is the one idea in the field of New Testament studies or Christian origins that needs to die? The one idea that needs to die. Now, you're speaking as an outsider to our field to a degree, uh, but uh, you have an you have an idea of a, of a of a do you have an idea in mind that needs to die? Oh my! I'm usually a both and thinker rather than either or. In other words, I, I try to see good in most ideas, <laughs> just so 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 long as they don't become uh, imperious, you know, and so that everything gets reduced to one idea. Nope. No both uh, and here. You've got to kill something. You I've have, got to, to, kill you have something. to kill something, Kevin. Yeah, can't have them both. Something has to go. Something in our field that you don't like. Uh, <laughs> and you can't you can't kill people. We had one guest, you know, uh, Chris Tilling, who. Who, uh, who who began to wonder if he if he was allowed to choose certain scholars that he wanted to bump off? Oh dear. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. I well, we're in the we're in the season of Lent, and uh, I happened to catch a recent CNN uh, show on the life of Jesus, fact or fiction. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, may I say, new quests for the historical Jesus. Uh, you you may, yeah. Uh, so why why do you think those need to die? Do you think just the CNN versions need to die? As Pro- uh, I mean, I mean, obviously there is a historical core yeah. at the heart of Christianity. So I don't want to do away. I did not say do away with the historical Jesus. Yeah. But my concern is it's a little bit like the Feuerbacherian concern that I think, and this is what Albert Schweitzer seemed to say as well that these historical searches for the historical Jesus tell us more about the people searching than they do about Jesus. Well, that's a good answer, I think. Um, all right, well, uh, let's let's jump into the, into your fourth chapter a little bit now. And when we were, you know, corresponding a little bit by email, uh, you know, to try to schedule a time for this conversation that we're now having, um, you actually were really enthusiastic because I told you I'd finished the first three chapters and I was about to start the fourth. And you said, oh, that's, that's where it starts to get really, really interesting. Uh, <laughs> and I had to agree, actually, as I, as I kept reading when I got to the fourth chapter. I mean, I liked it the whole way through, but I, I, I found this, this particular part did hook my interest even more. Uh, so this is on uh, Christ alone, and you, you really uh, turn that toward a discussion of the royal priesthood of believers. And uh, you know, I think within Protestantism, uh, many of us, I think, um, we kind of recognize the royal priesthood of believers as a foundational, you know, uh, platform within the Protestant Reformation. But uh, it, it maybe doesn't get as much billing as, uh, you know, as, as Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide and, and so on and so forth. Um, so uh, you put it s- central and you even say that it's, uh, in fact, the sum of the solas and, you know, maybe it's even a summa of mere Protestant Christianity. Uh, right. Why do you... Why do you regard it as the Summa? Well, uh, so what is going on in Scripture? What is the gospel all about? It's not simply the good news that individuals can be saved. I think what we have in the New Testament is the announcement that God's plan for earth uh, to create a holy nation, a people who would be his treasured possession, that has come to fruition in the church. So, my rhetoric may be a bit much, but my point is, I think in Protestantism in general, there is often an underappreciation for the church. Now, certainly in much popular perception, people think Protestant individuals. I think we need to recover the Protestant understanding of the church as a holy nation that is gathered together by God's word, the gospel, to uh, minister God's love, grace, and truth to the rest of the world, and to be harbingers of this new creation. So, yeah, I'm excited about the church. I wish Protestants were more excited about the church. And I also think that in this idea of the royal priesthood of all believers, we might have at least the beginning of an answer to the charge that Protestants loose interpretive anarchy upon the world. 
Yeah, I'm going to head to that question in just a second. Um, okay. Thinking about the royal priesthood imagery, I think one of the things that was nice that you pointed out is this is not an idea of an individual priest, but we're priests toward, to one another, right? It involves a communal dimension in yes. its very nature. Yes. Uh, and uh, and so that we, we, need, we need to think of the royal priesthood accordingly. Um Let's go ahead and jump over to that uh, to that part about um, about uh, the, the the keys uh, of the kingdom and how we how we think about um, uh, authority with regard to um, the royal priesthood of believers and how those might interface with keys and kingdom concerns. Yes. Now, in, in Roman Catholicism, the keys obviously stand for the the authority of the patron office, you know, to bind and to loose sacramental grace, to open the treasuries of merit, you know, uh, whether that is on the basis of an indulgence to 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 free someone from purgatory or whatever it might be. But the idea is that the, the patron office and the pope uh, ultimately has the authority to, um, to, to, to bind or to lose sacramental grace, right. uh, especially as it's connected to the treasure of merit. Now, the reformers, on the other hand, are going to connect it to, uh, to, to the apostolic office in general or to church discipline with Calvin. Uh, you advanced, I thought, an intriguing proposal, and this might have been my very favorite part of the entire book, uh, about how uh, advances in scripture scholarship help us move beyond these options that the Roman Catholic Church are giving and the Reformers are giving on on the other hand. So uh, what do you think it, uh, the keys of the kingdom mean in terms of uh, new scriptural understandings? Uh, so I think the keys of the kingdom have to do with the authorization by the risen Christ to the church, by which I mean a local congregation of believers, uh, to proclaim the good news, to say uh, who the gospel is about, what the gospel means, and how people should respond. It's, it's really the authority to proclaim the gospel, and then uh, in the community of faith to exercise uh, discipline in that community. So you see that the exercise of discipline to be an extension then of the proclamatory function of the gospel as that creates a community uh, and that community doesn't have uh, any sort of boundaries it wishes, but there's a certain kind of moral authority that's connected to the, the binding and loosing uh, that's invested in that, uh, in that community. Yeah, that- I, I think there's a connection between saying what is in Christ and then exhorting people to conform to that reality and I think in, in many of Paul's letters, we have this familiar, uh, you know, break halfway through his epistles where he's been speaking in the indicative, which is saying what is in Christ. He's explaining our new being in Christ. And then he switches to the imperative. And then he, once he's laid out what the reality is, he encourages the church to conform to that reality. And I see the kings, or sorry, the keys, as uh, you know, having a role in both those dimensions, it has both the um, the authority to proclaim what is in Christ, and then the the exhortation to conform to what is in Christ, and then the discipline, if necessary, to uh, make sure that there aren't gross violations of that. We don't want the church to be bearing uh, a, a witness that denies the substance of the faith. I, I felt I felt that was a very very helpful way of framing it, and I had never heard it framed in at least quite that way. Uh, so uh, it was an interesting portion of the book, and I thought pretty compelling. So I, I hope everyone will check that out. Um, well, we're starting to run a little bit shy on time, uh, and so uh, maybe this question then is a good way of summing up uh, a lot of what you've done already, as as uh, we we kind of try to bring things together. Okay. Um, your last chapter then uh, con- concerns then soli deo gloria for the glory of God alone, and communion is a touch point then, uh, uh, and the, that practice of coming together as a church body for um, for whether or not we're living that out, right? Whether or not we're living out the yes. vision of for the glory of God alone. Why is communion such an important touch point? Well, again. My concern is to uh, respond to this suspicion and the charge that Protestantism divides. And it is true, if you look at the history, that the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli in particular, they did disagree about something where 
one would have wished they had been able to come to a common mind because they disagreed about the Lord's Supper, what we call our communion table. And communion is arguably what there is in Christ. There is one body, one loaf. And, you know, we're to, we're to share the loaf, we're to be the loaf, we're to demonstrate this unity. And when the church can't demonstrate the fact that dividing walls have indeed come down in Christ, then there is a problem with the gospel witness. So, empirically, Protestants have failed. Now, I say that, uh, I say that um, in part because there is a historical record of failure. There is still table fellowship, even across denominations, and I think that's important to signal. But there have been failures where Protestants were unable to share the Lord's Supper because of doctrinal disagreement. That's a concern that I have. And so the adjective mere before a Protestant is an appeal for people to put secondary differences behind them in order to concentrate on what is most important, and that is living out our unity in Christ. Well, I appreciate your at, the absolutely serious way in which you take that unity, as you even suggest that we might consider adding a sixth sola, the sola ecclesia, uh, as an additional uh, sola, uh, which I think which shows your heart for uh, for church unity. Uh, now, of course, what that unity consists of doesn't necessarily mean a hierarchical unity. Uh, it seems that your vision lends itself more toward uh, local churches um, that are in communion with one another. Uh, one of the ironies, I think, when I think about the Catholic-Protestant relationships uh, and sometimes the rhetoric that Protestants need to return to Rome is that Protestants frequently have a more open table fellowship than, yes. than Catholics. If the Pope was to come into my church, he could take communion, but I can't take communion in his. Exactly. Uh, which is interesting. Um, well, uh, as a way of, of, of a, a final uh, summing up, um, uh, do you have a word that you would want to speak uh, to the church, uh, or you could uh, speak a word that maybe tries to bring together all the solas uh, in a final statement? Uh, whatever you want to offer uh, as a final word, uh, go ahead and offer it, Kevin. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'll, I'll try. Uh, again, I think to be Protestant, one doesn't have to give up one's... Um, I won't say pride, but, but I sent, say um, uh, a certain loyalty to denominational distinctives. But I don't think the loyalty to denominational extent, uh, distinctives should exceed our loyalty to what we share in the gospel. So I don't myself think we have to do away with denominations. In the book, I suggest that maybe there's a way of looking at denominations as each providing, as it were, a gift to the church Catholic. Now, I admit readily that's not the way it often works out. Sometimes people, you know, they circle the wagons, and it's not enough to be a Baptist or even a Southern Baptist. You have to be a certain kind of Southern Baptist or a certain kind of Presbyterian. That is not what I'm suggesting. But I do think that at our best, Protestants bring distinctive insights that have occurred because of their specific time and place. They bring them to the table, the conversation table, the communion table. What I hope for is not an institutional unity, but table talk unity, a dialogical unity, a unity at the Lord's Supper about the richness of the Lord's gifts. Uh, that's the kind of uh, unity I see, and I'm all for what I call a reform Catholic Church. That is, I want the Catholic Church, I want us to acknowledge uh, the, the breadth and width and length and depth of the Church. Every local Church is to represent the Church Catholic. That doesn't mean you have to come out of your denomination. It just means you have to contribute to table talk about the Gospel. Well, that was a poignant and fitting uh, final summation, I think, of your work. Kevin, I've really appreciated this conversation, uh, and I've derived considerable benefit from your book, so thank you very much. Matthew, thank you for your questions. I appreciate it. Yeah. In fact, I'm teaching History of Christianity to the semester on the Reformation, and your book has helped me gain a, a much more nuanced purchase, I think, on mere Protestant Christianity than I might have had otherwise. Good.
Yeah. All right. And if uh, you, oh, dear listener, haven't purchased Kevin's book yet or haven't read it, uh, I suggest you hasten to your Amazon cart and make the purchase. We do have links uh, on our website. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. Kevin J. Van Hooser has been our guest today. The book under discussion, Biblical Authority After Babel, published by Brazos in 2016. Our website is onscript.study, on which you'll find a link to Kevin's book, along with all kinds of other links and things that will surely tickle your fancy. If you've been enjoying these podcasts, we'd appreciate it if you take the time to share OnScript on Facebook or Twitter, or if you'd review the podcast on iTunes. Wishing you peace, good, and all happiness. Until next time. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Mm-hmm.